Psalm 15. When I was in college, my friends and I would regularly babysit uh, the family of my campus minister, and he had 11 children. I kid you not, 11 children between the ages of 0 and 13. And they had a family, uh, this family had a little boy named David, and David was around five years old, and David uh, required for one of us to put him to bed, and we would read him a story and pray with him, and and, uh, then we would, you know, put him to bed. Well, one night, it was my turn to put David to bed. And uh, so there I am. I finished reading the story. I prayed with him a little bit. And he looked up at me with these big eyes. And he says, Godwin, why is your face all chocolatey? <laughs> and uh, I, I, I wasn't really sure how to answer that question. I thought, maybe, maybe he's hungry. I need to go downstairs and get him a snack. Kids are always so curious, aren't they? They always ask wonderful questions. The other day, Emma asked uh, my wife, Jenny, uh, you know, we've been reading uh, the Big Picture Story Bible with her, so she, she asked Jenny, uh, where is heaven? And what a, what a great question. Sometimes their questions are wonderful. Sometimes their questions are exhausting. Why do I have to get, go to bed right now? Are we there yet? And then as they get older, they ask more complicated questions, don't they? Like, um, where do babies come from? And then, of course, the corollary several years later, why can't I have sex before marriage? And adults, we, uh, we ask big questions too, don't we? Is there such thing as a just war? Uh, why is there good and evil and suffering in this world? Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? There's lots and lots of questions. I think, you know, wise and astute people are not the ones that have all the answers, but the ones who can ask the right questions. And that's because questions, what do they do? Well, they help point out what is important. What is the real issue? They help frame the discussion for uh, for us. And this morning, we're going to look at a very important question. Perhaps the ultimate question in Psalm chapter 15. So let's read that together. Psalm chapter 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue who does his neighbor no wrong, wrong and casts no slur on his fellowmen, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that we cannot properly understand this passage. We certainly cannot properly apply this passage to our lives without your help. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you make this passage understandable to us? Would you help us to see the beauty of this passage? Would you help us, yes, to apply it to our lives? 
Father, would you be exalted in these next few moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This was probably uh, penned by David after he returned the Ark of the Covenant back to the place of worship in Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't some random piece of furniture. It was a special item for the people of Israel. Uh, It represented God's presence and his favor with his people. And so, since it was gone, the Philistines had stolen it. They had captured it. God's people, they were rattled. They were frazzled for quite quite a long time. And so when David restored the Israelite empire, he wanted to restore true worship back to his people. And so he got this ark and he returned it to Jerusalem. And scripture says it was a day of massive celebration. People were cheering in the streets. It even says in scripture that David was dancing in the streets with joy. And it was out of that celebration time that David had this moment of reflection when he penned this psalm. He was wondering, who can enter God's sanctuary, this place of worship? Who could be with God? Who could experience God's presence and his favor? Now, later in Israelite history, this psalm was probably used liturgically. Now, what does that mean, liturgically? Well, worshipers would come to the gates of the sanctuary, and they would call out verse 1, and then the priests would respond with verses 2 through 5. And so this was kind of a test, a way to do some self-reflection before you came into worship. Now, there is also a chance that this was the psalm Christ preached on in the Sermon on the Mount, because there is a phrase-by-phrase similarity. I know some of, uh, some of the women here at South Shore Baptist Church, you've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount this summer, and uh, as we go through this, maybe you'll see some uh, similarities. So... Here's what we do now. This psalm was used to prepare God's people for reflection and worship. Reflection on their spiritual lives, and that's what we're going to do this morning as well. So it starts with a question in verse 1, and then the answer is in verses 2 through 5. So first the question, who can dwell in God's sanctuary? Who can live on God's holy hill? Now these are symbols of the place we meet God. They are metaphors for God's presence. And God's presence is more than just a relational reality. It is that, but it meant more than that. It meant that they could experience God's favor, his power, his love in their lives. So being in the sanctuary, climbing this holy hill, meant that God's people could experience his blessing. So the question here in verse 1 is, what kind of person is qualified to have this kind of relationship with God? Who can experience God's presence and blessing in their lives? Now, why is this question important? Well, because this gets to the heart of the biblical story, doesn't it? And it gets to the heart of humanity as well. Why were we created? Now, I think sometimes Christians forget this. Why were we created? We were created to be with God, to enjoy God, to glorify God, of course, all of us together. And that's where it all began, didn't it? In the Garden of Eden, you've got Adam, you've got Eve, and you've got God all together. God with his people in relationship, in perfection, and in glory. And that is what was totally wrecked when Adam and Eve fell into sin. God said at that point, you can't be in my presence anymore. 
And so he kicked them out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible is the story of redemption. It's the story of restoration. It's the story of God bringing us back to the garden. God bringing sinners back to him. So it's not surprising then to see David asking this question because it addresses the question the entire Bible is trying to answer. And it addresses the deepest longing of our hearts. Maybe you don't realize that. You were created to be in God's presence. You were created for, and you will find the greatest satisfaction in communing with your maker, in enjoying his fellowship. When you're in God's presence, that is when you're really going to soar. That's when things will fall into place. That's when life won't feel so flat. When you have God with you, even the broken and confusing and messed up parts of life, they're not going to shake you because you're standing on the rock that is God. So David is asking this important question. What kind of person can have God's blessing and his favor? And the answer is in verse 2 through 5. So he gives a four-part answer in these verses. Here's the first part. That person, that blessed person, has seamless character. Seamless character. And now you've probably noticed that in the last few decades, there is an integrity crisis in America. You open the newspaper, you look at CNN.com, you, you, know, you, you scan through your Facebook news feed, and you'll quickly see this. You know, we, we read every day about some new scandal, don't we? You know, whether it's a celebrity who falls from grace, whether it's a a star athlete that falls from grace, whether it's a pastor that falls from grace. Just recently, over 400 pastors were found on the Ashley Madison list of users. So for those of you that don't know, Ashley Madison is a website which encourages adulterous affairs. 400 pastors, brothers and sisters. And some of them, you may recognize their names. And so just just picture with me some of these pastors in the last three or four Sundays gathered up behind their pulpits with their families, weeping before their church, tendering their resignation. This This ought to break our hearts. This is happening because we have an integrity crisis. Yes, even in the church, we have an integrity crisis. And in the midst of that, David says, and God is saying to us this morning, if you want to be blessed, if you want to ascend the holy hill, if you want to experience God's presence, you've got to have consistent character. Now, the word here for blameless, look at verse 2, the word for blameless has a root meaning of seamless. Someone who lives a seamless and whole life. You know, what's, what's inside is seamless with what's outside. It's kind of what Kevin was talking about earlier. It's what 1 Samuel 16 was talking about. Someone who not only does what is right, look at verse 2, but it says, speaks the truth from their hearts, or more literally, in their hearts. Speaks the truth in their hearts. This pushes us to evaluate what exactly is in our hearts. What's going on in our hearts? If we want to live this seamless life, this inside-outside life, what is happening in our hearts? What kinds of things are we thinking and feeling and entertaining? 
Are our thoughts reliable? Are they faithful? Are they good and true? You know, are we preaching the gospel to ourselves like Pastor Jeremy talked about a few weeks ago? Or are we entertaining false gospels, false truths in our hearts, false perceptions, false judgments of ourselves, but also of other people? The person who enjoys God's presence, the person who is blessed is the person who is consistent through and through. What's inside is seamless with what's outside. So the same person who shows up to church on Sunday morning shows up to work on Monday morning and shows up to that party on Friday night. A seamless, whole, consistent life. In verse 3, we see another facet of David's answer. This blessed person, this person who climbs God's holy hill, loves his neighbor, loves his neighbor especially with his words. Now, the word for slander there in verse 3 comes from the idea of biting or devouring. You know, sometimes even Christians can be like piranhas, biting each other, devouring each other with our words. At the end of verse 3, notice that interesting phrase, cast no slur, cast no slur. A very literal translation there is to strip. So David is saying the blessed person doesn't strip others of their reputation, doesn't shame them or demoralize them with their words. Slander and casting slurs. Now this paints a picture of going around to spy things out and spread damaging information. David is talking about gossip here. He's talking about being sneaky and manipulative to gather information and then proclaiming it from the rooftops, either for fun or to hurt others. As one pastor likes to say, gossip strips a person of their reputation for the scintillating pleasure of carrying on a tale. Words can wound us deeply. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can hurt me even more. Some of us still carry wounds and hurts that are the result of words that people have said to us or said to others about us. You know, maybe it was a a parent or a friend or a relative. We can still hear their voices in our heads. We can still uh, hear those words in our hearts. We still, still replay that track, and it hurts. It still impacts us. It's like little splinters in our hearts. If you want to ascend this holy hill, if you want to enter God's sanctuary, if you want to experience his presence, his blessing, then brothers and sisters, we've got to stop slandering and gossiping. And you might say, it doesn't happen in the church. It happens in the church. And here's the thing, gossip and slander not only damages the church community, but according to this passage, it damages your own fellowship with God. So the blessed and favored person has seamless character, loves his neighbors with his words, and now verse 4, has clear-cut allegiances. Look at verse 4 with me who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord. Now, this is a tough one, right? I mean, is, is David endorsing that we, we hate folks? Is it okay to despise people? Now, I think David's intent here is to describe a person who practices discernment. 
He understands the difference between good and evil. And yes, the difference between good people and evil people. He can draw a line in the sand. You know, is sin truly evil to us? Or is it attractive? Are we easily seduced by evil? Once again, what kinds of things are we filling our minds with? You know, if we somehow gathered up information, if we had this ability, we gathered up the information on the kinds of television shows we watch, the, the comedians we YouTube, uh, the music on our iPads, and we somehow, we, we, we got to publish it on the PowerPoint screen here. Would we be embarrassed? Or worse, would we not be embarrassed even though we should? I also think David is getting at avoiding the company and influence of evil persons here. While on the other hand, seeking the company and honoring those who are following God or fearing God. Do we honor those we shouldn't and dishonor those we should? You know, what kind of people do we make into heroes? When I think about verse 4, honoring those who fear the Lord, I think about two people. Neil Rogers, you don't know him. He's a friend of Jenny and ours back in Michigan. He was a man that loved God and loved people and poured his life into people. He's not a glamorous person. You would not be interested in him when you first look at him. But man, does he love you if you're in his life. I also think of Michael Gary. Some of you know him. He passed away a little while ago. He was a member of this church. He was someone who loved God with all his heart and he loved people, didn't he? Now, who comes to your mind? Who comes to your mind? Sometimes in the name of mission, we do some, some dumb things. We want to get into the world. We want to influence the world. We, we want to maybe get a chance to tell people about Jesus, but what, what ends up happening we, uh, we compromise, we fudge a little bit, we make lots and lots of friends, and then we end up losing our, our witness. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to heed verse 4. The blessed and favored person has clear-cut allegiances and associations. Do you? Do you have clear-cut allegiances and associations? So seamless character... Loving with words, clear-cut allegiances, and lastly, look at verse, uh, the end of verse 4 and then into, into verse 5. This person has honorable dealings. Honorable dealings. Who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. So, first of all, someone who follows through on promises even when the circumstances of life may change and it becomes costly to do so. You know, that's, that's really tough. Now, how many times are we tempted to pull out of a commitment because it's inconvenient or, you know, the stress level is rising? That's, that's convicting. Verse 5 speaks of uh, honorable financial dealings. God's people don't look for an advantage by taking out interest. That's usury. And God's people can't be bought. They won't be bought with a bribe when the person they're harming is innocent. So the point here is God's blessed and empowered people don't take advantage of the weak, the poor, and the disenfranchised. 
That's the kind of person that can climb the hill and enjoy God's presence. Now, as you look at verses 3 through 5, isn't it interesting that all of these descriptions focus on our horizontal relationships? You know, if you want to enjoy God's presence in your life, what David's saying is get your relationships right. Get your relationships in order. It's one thing to understand that the vertical impacts the horizontal, right? Our relationship with God impacts our relationships with each other. But here we see that the horizontal, the way we treat each other, impacts the vertical, our capacity to enjoy fellowship with God. Maybe God feels distant to you right now. You know, maybe you think he's abandoned you. You're, you're doing everything you can. You're getting into the word. You're, you're praying. You go to church. You get to the Bible study. But God seems to have turned his back on you. But I wonder, if we were able to peer into your heart, what would we see? we had the ability to see your relationships, what would we see? Would we see your relationships are a mess? You aren't really, truly loving people. You know, you, you read the Bible and pray in the mornings and then you're a jerk in the office. You treat your spouse poorly. You take advantage of people. You, you fudge on your financial dealings. Is that what would, we would see? Well, if that is you, listen, God hasn't abandoned you. You've abandoned God. And I don't say that in a harsh way because this psalm mercifully is calling you back to repentance. It's calling all of us in some ways back to the right path with people in our lives so that we can experience God's presence and deeper fellowship with him. And notice this psalm ends in verse 5 with a, a beautiful promise. The one who climbs the hill, who enters the tent who is blameless in all these different ways, that person will not be shaken. What a great way to close out this psalm. But there's a problem with this psalm. Do you sense it? I felt it when I worked on this psalm earlier this week. I spent about uh, half a day to a day when I'm preaching, uh, meditating on and praying through the passages that I'm, you know, preaching on. And so what I do is I take my Microsoft document uh, out and I guess my laptop out and um, I, I put the verses down in different sections and under each section I write out, I type out prayers. And usually it takes about two or three pages on my Microsoft document, but this psalm, with this psalm, I was writing and writing and writing and writing and pouring my heart out to God. You know what, you, you want to know Why? Because this psalm totally destroyed me. This psalm utterly crushed me. And I think it ought to crush you too. Because who is this person in Psalm 15? Can anybody in this room claim to be the he in verse 2? Anyone have seamless character, always loving with words, clear-cut associations, upright in all their dealings? Anybody? Yeah, no one. Not one of us. And that's a problem because it means that no one can ascend the holy hill. No one can enter the sacred tent and be blessed and empowered and not shaken forever and ever. Amen. No one. Not one of us except Jesus. 
The he in the psalm isn't you or me or some pious ancient Israelite. It's Jesus. He walked a blameless life. He always did what was right. He had the pure heart. He used his words to benefit others, not to tear them down. He had clear-cut allegiances. And he made a promise, didn't he, to his father? And following through on that promise to save sinners would cost him his life. And he could not be bought, even though Satan tried to buy him off with the kingdoms of the earth. He didn't take that bribe. He never took advantage of the weak, but he lived to serve the weak and the poor and the unloved. In fact, he made himself weak. He allowed others to take advantage of him as he went to the cross. He allowed himself to be that victim for sinners like us. He is the only righteous one. He is the blameless one that can ascend that hill, that can enter into God's presence, that can enjoy that blessing, that power, that favor. And it's only those who have repented and believed, who are united to Christ in faith, who can walk up that hill with him and enjoy God's presence and favor and blessing. Have you done that? Have you repented of your sins and and have you repented of your righteous acts? Have you repented of your uh, religious resume that doesn't really add up? Have you abandoned yourself entirely to God's mercy and embraced Christ, embraced his righteousness for you? You see, this psalm is meant to remind us that we will never achieve acceptance with God based on our own righteousness. This is the gospel. This is the good news from Psalm 15. Let me preach it to you one more time. Christ came to die for sinners. His righteousness can be yours if you repent and believe. You can walk up that hill with confidence and enter into God's house, not by wearing your filthy rags, but by casting them off and putting on Christ's righteous robes. And so, brothers and sisters, abandon your false sense of righteousness and receive Christ's righteousness today. You know, Paul Tripp has pointed out that the gospel does this amazing thing for Christians. It does two things. First, it comforts us, and then it calls us. It comforts Christians because it helps us to rest and be secure in Christ's righteousness. It makes us see that Christ is the he in this psalm, not us. And that's good news, amen? But the gospel does something else too. It calls us to be holy. It calls us back to this psalm to look at it again and to obey it. The gospel uniquely comforts us with grace, but the gospel also uniquely calls us to obedience you can't have one side without the other. And so you've got to take both sides of this psalm as well. You've you got to take the comfort from this psalm. First, that Jesus is the he. But you also got to hear the call that you are summoned to embody these very truths. And the order is very important. You can't make Psalm 15 about you until you first made Psalm 15 about Jesus. But after you've made Psalm 15 about Jesus, you've got to make Psalm 15 about you. Now, some of you in this room, you need a a swift kick in the rear because you take advantage of God's free grace to you. 
you think you've got a free pass because you've said a prayer, you know, when you were five years old or maybe a few years ago. But when we examine your heart, your relationships, you aren't really following God. You aren't truly loving people. You can't have the comfort of the gospel without also having the call of the gospel. So yes, rest in the gospel, but also feel the call of holiness. It's a healthy weight. It's a life-giving burden. And so if that's you, let me encourage you, brother, sister, friend, to repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness, to run to him. You're going to find a tender shepherd. You're going to find someone who will be quick to forgive you and will be gentle with you and draw you into him and his life. Now, others of you this morning are feeling defeated. And Psalm 15 didn't help because you were feeling the bricks on your back as I was preaching through Psalm 15. It destroyed you like it destroyed me. And you need to hear this word of encouragement. You can't follow the call of the gospel without first experiencing the comfort of the gospel. So many of us scurry about frantically trying to secure more blessing, more acceptance from God when it's already ours. It's already in our back pockets. We don't have to perform in order to secure God's blessing and favor. We don't have to get straight A's on the, you know, the religious report card in order uh, to receive God's acceptance. Jesus is the he in this psalm. He's done it. He's gotten straight A's, and he's gotten the straight A's that we should have gotten, but we can't. So rest in this gospel. Take comfort in this gospel. Rest in the righteousness of Christ for you. And then, and only then, go and live out this psalm. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this good news. Good news which we hear every Sunday we come to this church, but we need to hear it again and again. We need to take comfort, Lord, in this gospel and freeze us from our sin, that shackles of sin are broken, that we can live new life with you, Lord. We're so grateful for the good news and the comfort and the rest that we find in the gospel. And Father, I pray that we would hear also the call of the gospel. And we would not only celebrate the grace of the gospel, but we would experience and hear and obey the call to be holy, to obey, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you provide. So Father, would you help us to hear that call and to experience that comfort this week? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.